everybody, welcome to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. And boy, are we getting close to the end of the 60s. We are right at the end of the original X-Men run just a few months away in uh, 1969 when everything was canceled that first time. Now, recently we covered X-Men number 61 in an incredible podcast with Derek Scott. In that issue, we saw the character Sauron have his ridiculous origin uh, explored, and he ended up trying to commit suicide in the Savage Land because his girlfriend Tanya was running at him and he didn't want to drain her life. Uh, The the only other thing you really need to know coming into this one is he recently hypnotized the angel and he tried to kill Tanya's dad. We'll reference that as needed, uh, but uh, we're getting getting ready to review X-Men number 62, which is called Strangers in a Savage Land. We will get to that at the end of this recording. Uh, First, I am thrilled to welcome back my uh, friends and co-hosts Anas Abdulak and Anya Prosser. And uh, I am so happy to welcome the artist Val Merrick to the show. Now, Val is a legendary creator. I I have been a fan of his for many years, and I'm so excited to have him here. Uh, Let me have each of you introduce yourselves. Let us know where we may know you from. Uh, Let us know your gender pronouns, if relevant. And the question I have for our introduction today is name an impossibly beautiful celebrity that you've had a crush on at some point in your life. This is a reference to uh, Kesar in our issue and how stupidly pretty Neil Adams draws him. <laughs> um, <laughs> let me turn it over to Mr. Val Merrick first. Hi, Val. Hi. How are you? I'm good. Good, good. Tell us where we might know you from a little bit. Um, in terms of the comic book world? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Howard the Duck. Um, I, I, of course, did I did a lot of Kesar work back in the... Um, mid 70s early to mid 70s and um some conan some conan savage sort of conans quite a few of those um and i kind of jumped around at marvel quite a bit when i was working for them um i didn't really like doing superheroes so i was kind of filling in where where um there were barbarians or tarzan like guys you know like kazar so <clears throat> Phenomenal. And can you think of a celebrity that's impossibly beautiful that you've had a crush on in your life? Boy, I'll tell you, you know, I've been around a while and I've seen a lot of movies. <laughs> I would, I don't know. Um, did you just lose my video there? Nope, nope. I can see you. Okay. Um, ah, I'm, I, I'm thinking of, of, a, of, a, of a British actress that was when she was younger, was just super gorgeous. She's like my age now, but um, Charlotte Rampling. Okay. If you know who she is. I do know who that is. And she's beautiful. I was expecting like a Sophia Loren or Anne Margaret. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I liked, I liked, I liked um, women with a more unusual uh, a beauty. Wonderful, my friend. It's so good to have you here. Uh, and then let's have uh, Anya, Anya Prosser uh, introduce herself. Hi, Anya. Hi. Thank you for having me back. Um, so my pronouns are she, her. Um, you may know me from the issue, the episode where we talked about Havoc's terrible life. Um, <laughs> but I recently started as a fellow for the Brink Literacy um, Project, which is an amazing 
nonprofit that focuses on teaching comics to disenfranchised people. And I'm focusing specifically on using comics in prison situations. Um, I'm also a doctoral student in education at Columbia with my focus on comics and mental health. Wonderful. Uh, and my crush, it's going to surprise you, Chad, um, but my crush is actually Disney's Robin Hood. Um, oh, that was wow. the first. Yeah, <laughs> that was the first like on-screen crush I remember, and I was just so infatuated with him. And yes, I recognize he is not human. That's an amazing answer, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, and then, finally, I'm so happy to welcome my dear friend Anas Abdulak back. Hi, Anas. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. It's always such a a blast to be on this podcast. Uh, same questions for you, my friend. All right, so my name is Anas. Uh, you might know me from the indie comic book community where I am the writer of Luthromania, Objects of the Mirror, and Etheris, which is coming out very soon. Um, I also co-host the Geekable podcast where we interview you know, comic book creators and talk all about all things about Marvel comics and indie comics and such. And to answer your question, also a cartoon character, <laughs> Anya, my first crush, actually it's been like for the longest time, was Rapunzel. <laughs> <laughs> Ever since I was a child and I saw that cartoon, I it just it hooked me. I I, I don't know what it is. <laughs> Are we talking like uh, Rapunzel from Tangled? Yes, Tangled Rapunzel. Something about really long hair. <laughs> Sometimes I forget how much older I am than you, my friend. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> and then lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I use he/him pronouns. Uh, I uh, I have a lot of celebrity crushes, I suppose. But I uh, I came out right around the time when Glee was on the air, and I still have a ridiculous crush on Darren Chris, uh, which is my first answer always. I can't uh, blame you. So uh, Kesar is a character we're going to be putting on trial in the podcast in January, and I recently read his entire chronology, which is what inspired me to reach out to Val Merrick, uh, uh, because Val is one of the best artists on Kesar. This is a character that is always drawn ridiculously beautifully, like in tremendous shape. He's in insanely sarcastic. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot to be said about him, but we'll talk a little bit about Kesar today. Uh, so Val, it made sense to have you on uh, our episode when Kesar came back, because he's in X-Men number 62, which we'll be talking about. Uh, so to begin, Val, I would love to hear just a little bit of your journey as kind of a fan into a professional uh, artist. I know you, uh, you've you done some incredible work over the years. Uh, will you share a little bit of your origin story with us? Yeah, sure. Um, first, I want to say, Anya, Comics and mental health, good luck. <laughs> so. <laughs> Focusing um, a lot on Wanda and Eliana, so I've got my work cut out for me. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I, I, um, I was not really much of a comic book fan. Well, as a kid, I read all the Disney stuff, Uncle Scrooge. Um, a, a, I love the Uncle Scrooge stuff, the the, the Carl Barks and um, version and. Um, I kind of moved away from comics. I was not a huge fan until college. Um, I, I was, when the Warren magazines were um, getting popular, um, I really enjoyed all the line work that was done by Esteban, Esteban Roto, a lot of those European artists that he was you know, using in those magazines. And 
And that appealed to me. And I was an art student at a, at a Midwest college that was not a bad college in terms of overall. It was, it was a good engineering school and an economic school, but the art, art department left a lot to be desired. It was terrible. It was in Ohio, and, and I couldn't afford to go to the Cleveland Institute of Art, so I, I stuck with this particular place. It was, it was miserable. It was a bunch of old, frustrated beatniks who hated everything, and their idea of, of an art class, a painting class, was to you know emulate Jackson Pollock by throwing paint across the room. And I wanted to be an illustrator. You know, I grew up looking at Norman Rockwell covers on, on Look Mag, Post magazine, and um, I was, of course, scorned for that. Um, anybody that wanted to do representational or realistic art was was considered, you know, somehow mentally incapacitated. And um, li and literally, I was, you know, it was, I mean, there was an antagonism towards students that, that, that had that orientation. And I didn't really know what to do about that. I, I figured I'd get my degree there and stick it out. Um, I, I did a lot of acting back then, and so I, I spent most of my time in the theater department, which was was not a, which was a lot of a lot more fun. And um, and I, I was um, talking one day in a, in a painting class with uh, another student, and he was a big fan of, of the underground comics, if you know what I mean by that term. Back then, the, the, the alternative publishers back then were called undergrounds, and they were, you know, the, the most popular artists at that time being Crumb, and Richard Corbin got his start in the undergrounds. We were talking about the undergrounds and, and some of the uh, more mainstream comics. And there was a woman who was in our painting class. She was like in her mid-30s, which was an which was you know old. We were twenty two. <laughs> she we she was returning to the university to um, uh, complete her degree so she could teach art, and she heard us overheard us talking about comic books, and she approached us and said, "Do you guys know who Dan Atkins is?" And I said, "Well, yeah, he he's an inker. He 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 does work for Marvel, does comics." She goes, "Yeah, well, he lives just down the street from me." I said. Wow. So this suddenly focused me. I thought, okay, I don't know, I don't know what I want to do with this teaching degree, with this degree I get out of this school. I don't know. I don't like it here. Um, I don't want to end up like these professors that I've got. So here's something I can look into. So I, I got all my all the art I could find that, that I thought was representational of what I did in terms of being a comic book illustrator. And I went down to, to see Dan. It was about 60, 70 miles away from, from where I was living. And Dan, I don't know if you know that much about Dan. Dan was quite an eccentric character. And Dan, Dan was not entirely forthcoming with me at first, but then he warmed up to me and we, I moved in kind of like, he wasn't really a mentor, but he was kind of a guy that he ran a small studio situation. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted, he was a man, he had been uh, mentored by Wally Wood and Wally Wood had a, a very extensive studio at one time and with four or five different artists that he was uh, mentoring and bringing up and working as, as assistants. And he, Dan wanted to do the same thing. So there was me and, and P. Craig Russell. Um, it was already there. Craig had lived very, just not very far away from Dan and Ted and Craig had already installed himself there. And so I moved down to East Liverpool, Ohio. And <clears throat> every night Dan worked at night. So every evening I would pull in and he and Craig and I would get to work on comics. Um, I think the first job we actually did was we helped him ink a Submariner. Uh, then there was a, 
uh, a Barry Smith Conan job that uh, Smith was late on, which was not unusual. And so a lot of the pages that were coming in were only just rough breakdowns, blue pencils. And Roy Thomas said to Dan, he said, you know, I, he, he, at that point he trusted Craig's work and mine. So we, Craig and I finished pencil the job and, and Dan inked it. And um, that was my first big time professional job. Um, and then uh, Roy assigned us each, Craig and I, um, a short story. And uh, I did an eight-page short story of, of a of a typical like a barbarian guy slaying a dragon, and Dan inked it. Craig did a story, and um, that was it. We we just we were we were off and running, and we were. Now, in- to to interject briefly, we have talked about Dan Atkins on the podcast a little bit. He worked on some of the early X Men books, like kind of in the numbers uh, of of the thirties. Did a ton of Silver Surfer, Captain America, Captain Marvel. Uh, legendary, legendary creator. Uh, when you say, uh, if I know about him, I know about his professional work, but very little about his life. When you say he's eccentric, what do you mean? Oh, it's, oh, it's he just was a very unusual little guy. He was rather, <laughs> he, he was rather compulsive. He had uh, an odd uh, vocal quality, which if you knew him, I could do an impression of him uh, Paul Galacy and I did, did really great impressions of Dan Atkins. We would kind of compete us to see who would do the best. If you never knew Dan, the, the, the impression doesn't mean anything. And so he's passed away now. But um, he, he grew up basically in a West Virginia hillbilly family. He had no front teeth. And he was only in his 30s from drinking sugary sodas all day long. And, and, <laughs> and that's what I mean, he was addicted to. to um, Either Pepsi or Coke. I can't remember. No, I think it was Coke, and and Galacy thinks it's Pepsi. But um, he ate junk food and and drank. Um, I mean, really junky junk food, and and drank these these sodas all day long. Didn't it? Didn't really enhance his health, of course. He um, he was just a funny. He was a great. He was a huge Elvis fan. He when when you got him going, he would do um, Elvis impressions, um, which was hilarious. <laughs> um, his wife was the sweetest thing in the world. Um, she, she, um, and she'd have to be to put up with Dan. And Dan, the, the most um, salient thing about Dan in terms of the business was he was he was um, just always late. He was just um, incurably tardy with his work. I'm not sure why that was. And he, he it was almost like he was trying to self sabotage, just sabotage himself. He. He would get a job and he would secure the job and he was told the deadline and he would just procrastinate, procrastinate until he only had a week left to do it. Mm. And then, of course, he was late and he would make up all these excuses and he would tell all kinds of lies to the editors about why he was late. Those are stories out of themselves. Um, a whole, that's a whole thing um, aspect of his life. So you came into Marvel right around a time when they were really bringing in a new influx of talent. You're mentioning Pete Craig Russell. You're mentioning Barry Windsor Smith. Uh, there was a lot of kind of fresh blood being brought in. Jim Steranko, Neil Adams. I mean, the list goes on and on. Uh, and it seems to me like it was a very kind of high creative time. What was it like, like working for the company in those days? It was very exciting. I don't think, I don't think that time has, has ever been... Um, repeated itself again. It just, um, there was, yeah, Mike Kaluta, Barry Wrightson, uh, Bernie Wrightson, Mike Kaluta, Howard Chaikin, Walt Simonson, 
Yeah. Um, um, Starenko and, and and Adams were just were just almost a half a half a generation before us. They they were they they merged kind of in the mid '60s. We didn't come until the early '70s. It was a it was a great time. Um, there was this sense of um, things are changing. It's not going to be just the Jack Kirby approach to comics anymore. Um, not that there's anything wrong. You know, Kirby was a genius, but it was not not that there's something wrong with G, with with Kirby, but you know, we're going to take, we're going to experiment in some new directions. And um, shortly thereafter, Heavy Metal Magazine um, was introduced to the, Amer the American market. And having, and seeing all that European uh, comic stuff that we had never seen before also influenced us, it, us guys in that generation. We, we, we could see there were, there were ways to, different directions that one could go in comics that weren't necessarily the superhero Marvel way or the DC way. And um, that, that was, to me, that was very exciting because that meant that that, that opened the doors for a lot of uh, other ways of doing comic books as, as opposed to what, what had been uh, done conventionally. Now you uh, you started out doing a lot of horror and like, as you mentioned, barbarian stuff and ended up doing some pretty iconic work on some of our favorite characters. Who were some of your favorite writers to work with back then? Uh, you know, I think all in all that the, 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 my most favorite writer ultimately was, although I didn't work with him very much, came, came much later in the late 80s. I, I did a, a samurai series with Chuck Dixon and, and Dixon, you know, you know, whatever else you want to, you, you, you can say about Chuck, he, he understands visual storytelling. He he understands it's a pictorial art form and that the balloons and the captions are really secondary. And uh, that's, believe me, that that's what, when, a, when a comic book artist discovers a writer like that, it, it's a find, you know, you, 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 you really utilize that um, and uh, take advantage of that. In the beginning, I wrote, did a lot of work with Doug Mensch. Um, I don't think Doug, Doug was a bad writer. It wasn't my favorite. Um, Jeez, uh, who else? Don McGregor, very, sure. very interesting writer. Um, and then, of course, then later on, Steve Gerber. And to this day, I, I really, I admire Steve's work more now than I did when I was working for him. Um, I Marvel recently asked me to um, do do a for, write the forward to the new um, Duck volume that's coming out, and it's a series of of work that uh, that of the, the Howard the Duck um, issues that were done by Steve and illustrated by Gene Colan, who was my, I think, one of the best artists ever in comics. And um, Oh, I love Gene Colan, yeah. Yeah, and I, I began reading all that stuff and I was really drawn into it. And I, and I, and I, I rediscovered kind of what a great writer um, uh, Steve was. He really created characters and he really couldn't do dialogue. Um, uh, and, and you know, besides all the eccentric characters he 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 uh, invented, and some of some of the wacky stuff that went on in, in the in the duck uh, books, just the, the writing itself was very sound, and, and it really got you. It really got you, you know, through it. There was a beginning, a middle, and an end, and uh, yeah. So I think I think to this day, I would have to say Steve. Amazing. 
you know, we've talked a lot about Neil Adams on this podcast where he's, you know, someone who was very near and dear to our hearts as X-Men fans. So I know that you were, you know, working around the same time and you worked together as well. I would love to get like an anecdote or a story about Neil, if you have anything you could share. Oh, I have a lot I could tell you about Neil. When I moved <laughs> to New York City, I'm, I um, stopped into continuity when it was really the, the buzzing, you know, the, the bevy of activity that it was back then. And um, just loads of talented people there, some working there, some just stopping by, some just hanging out. It was, it was, it was a Parnassus of, of creative acti activity. Um, I don't think there'll ever be anything like it now because of the, just the nature of, of you know, social media and so forth, which has kind of supplanted that, which is unfortunate. Um, it, it allows us to do what we're doing now, which is great, but um, having like a, a studio headquarters in a place like New York, you know, where you where you knew there were all a lot of great artists were going to be there at any given moment, doing some work, talking about their newest project. That was an exciting time, and Neil Neil was was you know, responsible for that. And you know, there's a lot of people that, that you know Neil rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, and you know Neil had his his eccentricities, and just because he's passed away, I'm not going to you know eulogize him. But on the other hand. He, I look back on it, and he did. He just did some great work in comics, and um, and he didn't. You know, a lot of people may may not know this, or maybe you do know this. Neil didn't really make a, a huge living at doing comic books. That continuity was was an advertising art farm, is what it was, and we did a lot of storyboards and um, comps. And Neil made a great deal of money there, and he taught me to do storyboards and how to how to do that and work with art directors which really came in handy to me uh, later on in my career when I kind of drifted away from comics, got into advertising and had a great time there. It was, it was, um, uh, I did very well financially there, much better than I ever did in comics. And uh, I, attrib you know, I, I, I attribute all that to Neil and Neil's uh, ability to want to work with other artists and bring other artists into, into the fold with continuity and, um, allow us to do our thing at the same time, you know, help us, that's my son, um, help us, um, you know, get, get, uh, acquire work, get some work done. <clears throat> and, um, so yeah. Okay. Now, now, now I'm telling you all that there's, and what, what else would you want to know about Neil? I mean, other than some that, that's a very general overall praise of Neil, but, I uh, I would love to hear what he was like a little bit, honestly. I uh, we've heard some stories from some of his contemporaries, but I think he's a fa fascinating character and a, and a really incredible artist. Well, you know, Neil had a huge ego, and um, you you don't you don't build like this little Neil you know a little empire around your own personality and talent unless you have you know a, a big a big ego. And Neil, I think, had a he had a bit of a of an inflated notion about how popular he was. I can remember I, I had some actor friends. I was doing some acting in New York as well. And I had some actor friends that I was in acting class with come up to continuity to see, just to show them what I was doing. And when I introduced them to Neil, Neil responded like, well, of course, you, how, how, how privileged you are to meet the great Neil Adams, you know, and they didn't know who he was. They didn't read comic books. They were there. And it was, and they were looking at, well, yeah, Mr. Adams, sure. You know, and they didn't quite know what, and, and that that's kind of indicative of of of, the, of his what, what how he saw his his place in the world. 
Also, Neil really, really worshipped comics. He um, would oftentimes make these these predictions that that someday comics would be the most um, uh, important medium and, and the most wide, widely read and a medium in in uh, modern culture. And this is long before you know digital media and before they even made the first Superman movie. And so we kind of thought he was out of his mind you know it's like there this is kid stuff Neil and nobody (laughs) this is not going to catch on and well of course in some ways he's been vindicated in that in that prediction not entirely but um it's still you know comics are still predicated to a particular genre and and a way of 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 looking at, at, at pop culture but um so to some extent he was right, but at the time he was saying it, we just thought he was, you know, out of his mind. And um, so there was that aspect to him as well. Like I said, this, he, and he really believed he was absolutely correct about all these things. I don't know, toward a few years ago, he was into this thing about how the, were you aware that his theories, his science, his quasi-scientific theories about the world, the earth, the planet itself, expanding yeah. through his that's some wild stuff there. Wait, what? <laughs> I don't know about this. Um, are you ready for this? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm seated, so lay it on me. I'm excited. Um, I'm excited. Well, a lot of there, there was some notion that the, I guess around around the time the Jurassic Park movies were were, were emerging, there was this notion that um, a, a lot of paleontologists were were dealing with this conundrum that that the skull, the actual weight of the skull of a T-Rex was so heavy that they wouldn't actually be able to, you know, move quickly and shake their head or they'd break their own necks. And based upon the analysis of what was ex- what, what was of, available to uh, analyze in terms of their skeletons and, and then what kind of muscular, muscular skeletal structure they had, um, that, that which which would indicate that T. Rexes then couldn't move. They weren't the quick, rapid, giant predators that we think they are. Because if they moved that quickly, they would break their own necks. Okay, and that, wow, that, that okay. was a, a theory that 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 I guess paleontologists were wrestling with for a while. I'm not even sure if it was a legitimate theory, but somehow that theory got to Neil, and Neil decided the reason that was was because gravity was much lower at that time during the Jurassic period. Than, than it is now, and why was the and and so for gravity to be lower for the for a, for a gravitational field of a planet to be lowered, the planet would have to simply be smaller, would have to have a lot less mass. And Neil said he solved that <laughs> that the planet is actually <laughs> creating itself. The planet is, is is if if we dig up a bunch of dirt and rocks and stuff, it doesn't matter because it just it's it's replacing that. And he never really could explain how that. What, how that was taking place, what that process was, but the planet was essentially regenerating itself and making itself larger all the time until finally we got to where we are today. And yes, a, a T-Rex, if he was existing somewhere, would break his neck if he turned his head too quickly now, but not then because the planet was about a quarter of the, the earth was a quarter of the size that it is now. <laughs> that's and, wild. And that that's, takes a lot of imagination, man. That's, that's <laughs> And I, and I and and he was challenged on this, and he he just dug his heels in and and, and did all this this quasi research, quasi scientific research, 
church, which, which he kept trying to bolster his, his, um, his theory. He was on a lot of these, like, at the, again, before this, the, he, he introduced him, this theory out to the world um, quite a while before podcasts and, and, and social media was as developed as it is now. And so he would be on these like late night, you know, uh, you know, crazy theory talk shows, you know, conspiratorial theory talk shows like Coast to Coast and Art Bell and stuff. And he would talk about this stuff and they would interview him and he would, um, he would expound upon this. And uh, to, to, to the time, to the very end of his life, I don't think he ever retracted anything. I think he firmly stuck to that and just kept trying to add, um, you know, some sort of data to it that would, that would substantiate it. Uh, that, now, that now, when I hear the name Val Merrick, I think of big, uh, wide expanses of fictional jungles and beasts and muscular guys uh, uh, fighting them with swords and horror creatures coming around the corner and uh, human emotion captured in like epic fantasy. I, I think your pencils are iconic. You are uh, associated with so many Marvel titles that have crazy names and they all have a big exclamation point at the end, like Creatures on the Loose and uh, Fear and Supernatural Thriller and Haunt of Horror and Legion of Monsters and Masters of Terror. Uh, they all have big exclamation points for me. Uh, I, one of the one of the characters I associate you uh, with you the most is Kesar. I would love to hear a little bit ab uh, about your work on this wonderful character. In some ways, he's kind of a different version of Conan the Barbarian, uh, just mixed with dinosaurs. <laughs> tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about your work with Kesar, if you would. Well, I I've always wanted to do Conan, but when I got into Marvel, Barry Smith was installed in Conan. When Barry quit. John Buscema came in, which is Buscema's a master, and and I I, I knew I wasn't going to compete with him at that point to get the book. And Doug Mensch and I have been working together a lot on the on the classic monsters books, the Mummy, Living Mummy, and uh, the Frankenstein monster. So Doug and I already have this this relationship going for about two years, and um. Kazar came available for for Doug to write, and that was the perfect character for me because it wasn't Conan, but I always liked the Tarzan character. But DC had Con had Tarzan, so I knew I wasn't going to be doing Tarzan as long as I was at Marvel. So I thought this, you know, here's a combination, here's a, a you know a, a cross between Tarzan and and Conan, and uh, what could be better, and. What also, it's even better in some ways than Conan. You know, Conan's got trappings. He he wears certain kinds of you know necklaces, and he's got belts and swords, and you know sometimes he's got he's got you know pieces of primitive armor. Pesar's just got his you know just his muscular body, you know, like Tarzan. You know, so that that's really simplifies things. Plus, I love drawing people anyway, so the anatomy thing is great. I just thought, good, this is just just this guy and his blonde hair and a loincloth, and what what could be better? <laughs> so. Um, uh, Doug and I got started on, 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 on Kazar and I, I loved it. for the time that I was on Kazar, I just had a great time because uh, they were allowing me at that point, my inking skills got to the point where they were matching my pencil skills early on. My inking was, was a little rough and, uh, 
so I was able to ink a lot of these books and um, I had a great time on those books. Uh, now, Marvel has another bizarre character, which won't show up in the X-Men for a long time, by the name of Man-Thing, which is another one that needs an exclamation point afterward. Man-Thing is a scientist named Ted Salas who is experimenting with a variation of Captain America's super soldier serum, and it goes weird because bad guys and crazy science, and he turns into a Swamp Thing-like creature with kind of an elephantine face and... He burns uh, anything that he touches if it is afraid. Now, this is a character that uh, that we've seen a lot in the comics over the years. Uh, recently, there was uh, an X-Men-focused storyline with him in the, in the series Curse of the Man-Thing. Uh, there's also a really unfortunately titled book that's infamous called The Giant Size Man-Thing, where he fights a creature called the Glob, which is also very unfortunate. <laughs> now, Val, I know you had, uh, I know you did some work on uh, Man-Thing as well. I would love to hear your thoughts and memories on this character as well. Yeah, I just, at the time, I, um, I was, <clears throat> like I said, there was <clears throat> a whole cadre of new guys that came in, and one of the guys I really liked a lot was Wrightson. And Wrightson was doing Man Thing or um, Swamp Thing, and I was a big fan of the Swamp Thing stuff, and I really wanted to do a character like that. And so when it when when Steve asked me if we were, I could do Man Thing, I said, Yeah, sure, that sounds that sounds great. Man Thing also had some he also had uh, some mild like supernatural kind of powers. Um, he was able to. The reason Howard the Duck came into our universe is because Man Thing opened up some portal. With, because of some psychic ability he's got. I, I, I never, Steve never really explained that terribly well. Yeah, no, if I'm remembering correctly, Man-Thing occupies uh, a swamp near Citrusville, Florida, which is our planet's repository for something called the Nexus of All Realities. There you go. It's a dimensional <laughs> portal that could open to any other dimension anyway. Right, right, right. <laughs> that's Steve, that's Gerber, man. <laughs> um, yeah, and I I really like doing the character because I, I liked I like doing natural you know um, I don't mind actually from from my years in advertising I learned to appreciate uh, drawing and illustrating architecture and um, but at that time I really my preference was always to do something you know organic and, and natural you know uh, swamps and you know trees and twisty vines and things like that so that was perfect for me at that time that's just what I wanted to draw. Uh, no, Howard the Duck, man. <laughs> before we move the... from Man Thing, I have a question. Um, yeah. Before we move from Man Thing, so you were talking about Neil Adams' prediction that comics would be everywhere. Did you see Werewolf by Night? And how do you feel about Man Thing making it to? The big I didn't. Little... I didn't see it. I did not see it. There's a lot that goes on now in the comic book world that gets by me that I don't see, unless. Unless friends of mine who are still in the business call me up and say, oh, you've got to see this. I don't see it. That's one thing I will see because this, you're the third person that's mentioned that to me. So I think I have to check that out. Um, was there Man Thing was in that? Yep. Mm -hmm. okay. and delightful. Delightful. Okay. Great. Great. I, it's I one of my favorite recent MCU projects. Okay. Good. Yeah. Now, uh, of all the things that you've done, the thing you are most remembered for is co-creating Howard the Duck, who is such a bizarre little creature. Tell us about creating Howard. What a wonderful thing to be associated with. Yeah. Um, I've told this to on many interviews. I mentioned this in many interviews, and, and it still amazes me because that, that character came about... Um, 
let me just say, if you if you want to introduce a new character to the Marvel Universe now, and they have hundreds of them at this point, from but you would you would have to go through a committee basically, and in who knows how many meetings. This just happened that Steve wrote this in the script. And here's what I think he is, and here's what I think he ought to look like. He's 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 kind of like Donald Duck, but he's not totally a cartoon character. He's more of a he's more of a you know a re, if if you he's he's three dimensional. So if you saw Donald Duck walking down the street, this is, you know think of how he would you know he would look. He'd be, he'd be three dimensional. So I said okay, and I just drew it. I drew it on that page in which it appeared later on when it was published. There were no preliminary sketches. There was no back and forth between Steve and myself saying, oh, no, change this. Oh, no, make sure. Steve did mention he would have a, a suit, you know, a, a jacket and tie and maybe a hat. And I, I don't know if the cigar was my idea or Steve's. Um, I really don't know. Um, and so I just drew it. I drew it on that page and sent that page in to be lettered and inked. And, and that was it. And it was that simple. And it was that fast. And, of course, none of us at the time knew the impact it was going to have. Sure. <laughs> now, Howard the Duck has gone on to become one of Marvel's most uh, popular characters at certain eras. Uh, I know it was a little while later, but he got his own series and then his own movie. Now, at my home once a month, we host what we call Cringe Movie Night. We have a big group of friends over, we make cocktails, and we watch terrible movies. And sometimes my kids join us. And we watched Howard the Duck. <laughs> In the first five minutes, my 10-year-old child was like, what are we watching? <laughs> and then he, of course, recently made an appearance in the Guardians of the Galaxy film. What has it been like to see that character kind of transcend the comic book medium in some ways? Well, it's been exciting. I mean, I, I hope they make a movie out of him. I think that I think the first movie, I have to say, I, I, I didn't see that movie until 2014. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But, but um, when the movie first came out, um, I was living in Ohio and I had moved back from New York City to, to Cleveland and I got a, 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 an invitation to the premiere of the movie, which was going to take place in L.A. And I would have to pay my own way out there and I was busy and I didn't go. And then, But Steve was living in L.A. at the time working in animation and he saw it and he told me it's terrible. It's, it's just, he says, don't even bother. Because it wasn't, obviously it wasn't what, it wasn't the vision Steve had for the character at all. And so I I knew it, it, at the time it, it had been on cable TV then over the years and I, I might've seen, you know, three or four minute segments of it. But when I moved to Texas, uh, I, I made I be, made friends with a guy who was involved in this, in the convention scene and the local comic book scene to a great, to a great extent. And there's a, there's a, are you guys in Colorado, by the way? Uh, I am in uh, Salt Lake City. Anya is in New York, and Anas is in Russia. But, oh. but I'm from Colorado. Okay. I'm actually from Colorado. So, um, where was I? Um, oh yeah, so this guy, his name is Moises, and he, he we have a thing here in Austin called the, um, the Alamo Draft House, if you know what that is. It, it's, you, you, you can sit down and eat and order snacks or a meal or whatever, and then watch the movie. And he was able to uh, obtain the um, uh, Alamo Draft House for an evening. And he, and he got a he, he was tracked down a 35 millimeter print of 
film print of the um, of the first Howard the Duck movie, and I was invited to see the movie and then and do a Q and A after the movie was over. And that was the first time I've seen the movie. It was 2014, and I really enjoyed it to tell you the truth because you know enough time had gone by that you know Steve's attitude and all the controversy about the duck and Steve and, and Steve having sued Marvel, all that was so far in the past that I could just look at this thing for what it was. I thought it was pretty pretty good. I mean, I think the voice of the duck, the personality of the duck, they 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 missed they missed the mark there. But the movie in of its in and of itself, I thought was pretty cool. And it's, it's it has some great special effects. I mean, that that was like state of the art special effects in those days. And they blew up a lot of stuff, man. <laughs> it's entertaining. It's entertaining from a camp perspective. Uh, the next month at, in our in our bad movie night, we watched the Super Mario Brothers movie, and my children agreed that Howard the Duck was vastly better. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's kind of had a resurgence in popularity. Did you see the Guardians of the Galaxy film? I did, and I saw him at the end, and I really liked that iteration of the duck. If they make the movie, I hope they stick with that. I thought that was really interesting. It had it had all the qualities I think Steve would have wanted. Um, even though it was just a 28 second, you know, or even less than that appearance. Um, I, I think that's really what, what uh, I, I can't speak entirely for him, but I really feel that's what, what Steve would be happy with that. He would have been tickled to death, actually. Yeah, yeah. Now we're going to transition. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. If I remember right, um, also Howard shows up very briefly in the Guardian's Christmas special that just came out. Yes, yes, and I, I, <laughs> I have not seen any any uh, clip snippets of that or any um, anything in the trailer or anything like that. So I don't know what that. Have you seen that? We just watched it uh, last week. I think it's like a very like he's kind of off in the corner in one scene kind of a thing. It's not it's not much of promise. But for those '90s kids of us, now he's connected to Kevin Bacon. So <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. Kevin Bacon between Howard. Yeah. Now, Bill, we're going to transition into our issue review in a few minutes, and I know you have to run for an appointment, but uh, I know you got a chance to read through X-Men 62, which features the return of Kesar and the first appearance of the Savage Land Mutates. Uh, I would love to hear some of your thoughts on the art or what it was like to read this issue after all these years. Yeah, you know, I, I remember I had that issue when I was, what, this is 68 or 69? 69, uh-huh. Yeah, I was 19. It was my first year in college. And I remember picking this up and, and reading it. And this was the first time I've seen Adam's art in comics. Because prior to that, somebody else was doing X-Men, I think, prior to this issue. Or maybe, maybe not. But but Adam's was, if, if this was, if not his first, it was like his second, third, or, you know, uh, job, X-Men job. And I thought, wow, look at this detail. Look at these layouts. And you know, wow, geez, this guy can draw. I mean, he really knocked it out of the park. I mean, every panel has just got Neil's ego all over it, you know. And um, and then Roy's writing is is very is very good, um, very clever. Just and and it just with, with the closing panel with you know, Magneto touching his helmet, you know, and clothes do make the man and all that stuff. That was that's great. Roy Roy was a terrific writer. Yeah, that, so, that cover with Kesar and Zabu looks like a Valmeric drawing until you mix the superheroes in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have I do have to say Zabu, Neil Zabu sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it, it looks like a, a kid a kid stuffed animal toy. I mean, compared to because I was when I drew Zabu and I drew I remember I I did the Tales of Zabu. 
Yeah, um, yeah. And I, I was, you know, I, I, my reference was um, Frank Frazetta because nobody does big cats like Frazetta did, and so I figured that that's the um, standard by which we all should be drawing large cats. And I don't know what I just I was I was very I was very surprised that Neil's that 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 character looks so amorphous and, and weak. Um, other than that, it was a great issue. Yeah, and the Tales of Zabu for our listeners was a backup feature in the KSAR magazine in the 70s, which featured stories about Zabu, who is the, of course, saber-toothed tiger uh, that is the partner of Kazar, or brother to Kazar, frankly. It's, they're, yeah. uh, they're, they're, they're closer than just partners. Uh, Val, what are you working on nowadays? Well, jeez, uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with that. Uh, there was a book that I did uh, with a, my writing partner, Jim Barry, that came out about four or five years ago called Dust and Blood. It was a graphic novel. It was about it was about the Little Bighorn, told from the standpoint of the of the cavalry and of the Native Americans. And um, it was it was a good looking book. We worked hard on it. It was reviewed well. And ever since then, we've been trying to come up with some other, you know, graphic novel thing. I think we've got one now. Um, I'll just give you a hint. It's It's got dinosaurs and cowboys in it. <laughs> a wonderful combination. I, I love horses, and I'm always looking for a way to draw them and, and put them somewhere. And I'm doing a series of paintings right now within that theme, which are going to be in a, in a, in a, a, a show, a one-man show at a gallery in early 23. So... I'm looking forward to that. Um, I've done a few fill-in comics here and there. Uh, there's a gentleman in Chicago named Austin Huff who is uh, um, launching his own his own um, title series called, called Power Comics, and it, it's kind of a kind of a nostalgic trip with you know with superheroes the way they appeared in like the '50s and, and uh, early '60s. You know, silly silly you know, silly get-ups and, and silly things that make them, you know, like but the guys that bounce around or guys that f have eagle's wings, you know, it's stuff like that. And it just, um, it, or guys that shrink, you know, there was like the fly. And he really, he was able to resurrect some of the old 50s superheroes that were in public domain right now. So I did a, I did a uh, story for him. So my stuff is showing up here and there. Um, I'm just mostly painting now. I'm painting a lot of Western uh scenes and um equestrian art and um i i do want to get back into doing a graphic novel this graphic novel though i i would like to get back and doing it when what and doing some work with for for austin i i discovered i really do miss doing the sequential um art thing this storytelling i i did a lot of that in advertising the storyboards but um that's not quite the same thing so that's kind of where i am well, my friend, I think you are a phenomenal artist, and it is such an honor getting to know you. If people want to find you online, I know you have your website, Val Merrick. Is it .net? No, it's .com. .com, pardon me. Uh, and so you can look up some of Val's incredible work there. I'm on Facebook, too. Uh, okay, and then Facebook's another great way, which is where I found you. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's such an honor to, uh, to be in contact with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you. Thank you for, um, I mean, I'm flattered, and... Uh, I've been doing quite a few of these lately, and I'm I'm astonished that so many people are are so familiar with with the stuff I was doing back then. And um, yeah, it's great. It's great. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Val, and uh, and have a beautiful day. You thank too. you, Val. It was oh, lovely to meet you. you.
Nice to so meet nice you. To meet you. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, take care. Okay, with that, we're going to transition to our issue review for the day. It's X-Men number 62. It's Chad and us and Anya. <laughs> Uh, And uh, we're going to be reviewing X-Men 62. Like I said, this is called Strangers in a Savage Land. This is the issue from November 1969. Uh, Roy Thomas is writer. Neil Adams on pencils. Tom Palmer on inks. 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 Sam Letter. Oh, my God. I can't talk. Sam Rosen on letters. And Stan Lee is the editor on this book. We have a surprisingly scandalous image of Kazar on the cover of this book. (laughs) He is standing on a rock with Zabu behind him, uh, overlooking the X-Men in kind of a field of uh, like real hot water that's like molten and like steaming into the air. And he is giving us like thigh and bicep and like his loincloth is like just kind of barely covering his butt. He looks real good. Also, you need to notice the forearms. The forearms become important later. This is he very important. Them. Yes. <laughs> what are your thoughts on this very sexy cover? <laughs> I like looking at this cover. I can see why the comic book uh, authority of like what, what was it called? The comic book safety authority. Comic, comic book code authority. <laughs> yes, I can see why that was a thing. <laughs> That's... Uh, so, uh, I say I would... this... Oh, go ahead, Anya. I'm sorry. Oh, I say this with all the love in the world, Chad, but this is how I ended up gay. Like, this <laughs> is so not my type. <laughs> I don't like men necessarily as arrogant as Kesar, but I certainly <laughs> would not kick him out of bed for eating crackers. Like, <laughs> He can hang around in that loincloth anytime. Uh, what are your thoughts on the character Kesar before we even begin this book? Is this a character that you guys remember fondly? What do you like about him? I I grew up like I don't know I don't know what my first introduction to Kesar was, but I've I, he's definitely been someone that I've always thought of fondly. Um, I remember vividly playing X Men Legends Two: Rise of Apocalypse back in the day. And there was a whole arc in the Savage Land where Kazar shows up and there was Sauron. And I, I just love that chapter so much. So I just, I think that was, that might've been my first introduction to him. He, uh, he's, he's pretty. <laughs> <laughs> to you, to you. I, I, again, so I mentioned this the last time I was on the podcast, but I got into comics in my 20s and I think I kind of missed the time where the Savage Land would have spoken to me it's fun it's ridiculous but it's I I realized that what I really like about the X-Men universe is it feels like it's a step removed from our reality and Savage Land is like three steps removed (laughs) um so these type of issues like I like them but I'm not super attached to any of the characters which is surprising because I really really loved dinosaurs as a kid. The Savage Land so I, I mentioned earlier I've recently read all of Kesar's appearances in a row and I'm working on uh, Sauron's appearances in a row now for upcoming trials. The Savage Land is a complicated place. Marvel has this like series of fictional places where they can send their characters for grand adventures. Uh, Mount Wondegor and Latveria and the Negative Zone. There's all these spaces that exist here. But the Savage Land is beloved because it's got dinosaurs and jungles and tribal politics and craziness. Now, in between Kesar's first appearance in X-Men number 10 and before he comes back here in X-Men number 62, he's had a series of adventures in other places. We'll cover this in his trial when we get there. 
But weirdly, he has been to London and New York. In London, uh, in a series of Daredevil Daredevil issues, he has learned his origin story. This man is named Lord Kevin Plunder. He uh, grew up British noble kind of re living in a castle with his dad and his very gay brother, Parnival. And uh, his dad has discovered the Savage Land and discovered an ore that exists there that's called anti-vibranium, which can melt metal, basically. It's not the same vibranium they have in Wakanda. Uh, now, Kazar's mother was murdered over this, and Kazar's dad formed this, like, secret vault, which could only be accessed by a medallion that he created and he broke the medallion in half, gave one half to Parnival and one half to Kevin. And then he moved back to the Savage Land with Kevin. Kevin was maybe 10 years old, but his dad died in a battle with Magor and the Manapes, who are characters we will talk about another time. Uh, they're not in this issue. But Magor does appear in X-Men number 10 with Kesar in that first appearance. So Kevin is left in the Savage Land, very Tarzan-like, and has to fend for himself. He is saved by Zabu, who is the last of the Smilodons or the saber-toothed tigers, because the rest of his uh, tiger friends have been hunted to extinction. Uh, so there's a wild origin story for this character. Are you familiar with this story? If so, what are your thoughts about it? This is me hearing about this for the first time. I, I always assumed he was born in the Savage Land, but I guess that makes sense because there are really a lot of people there. Um, there's I mean, a lot of tribes there, but not very British-looking white ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know any of his history, but my entire life I've wanted my own Zabu. Yeah. <laughs> my husky is looking at me disparagingly right now as I say that. Well, and the colonialism of it all, his last name is literally Plunder, which is amazing. <laughs> There's a, there's a lot. We have a, again, researching this character was a whole education. We've also spent a lot of time on the podcast with Sauron in our last few episodes, who is my all-time favorite nonsense camp villain. Okay, let's delve into today's issue. Before we, uh, before we get too deep into things, I'm just going to note this is the first appearance of the Savage Land Mutates, who I love. If you guys had a chance to read the five-page Toad story that I did with Seth Martell and posted online, it is a uh, Toad fighting the Savage Land Mutates. I love these characters. Some of them are <laughs> real nonsensical, but some of them are amazing. We'll introduce them in a few minutes. And uh, for context, again, we're in the 60s still. The X-Men have faced the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. For a couple issues, they faced Count Nefaria and his weird cronies. And they've also faced Factor 3, but they do not fight groups very often back then. So the Savage Land Mutates is one of the very first groups they have ever fought, unless you count the Avengers and the Fantastic Four, who they've sparred with a few times. Uh, this issue starts with Angel in Tierra del Fuego. Now, if you'll remember, Sauron turns back into Carl Lycos. He rushes back to the southern tip of South America, where he is uh, kind of letting himself starve to death. His girlfriend, Tanya Anderson, rushes to try to find him there. This is the same place where he was initially, as a child, attacked by these crazy pteranodons. And Angel, who was recently hypnotized by Sauron and, uh, and had to fight the X-Men, has come there to find the X-Men who have gone looking for Sauron. So when we start on page one, we see Angel kind of being accosted by pteranodons in Tierra del Fuego. It's a startling beginning because we just got done with Sauron and we have more pterodactyls 
as we, as this we page up. is one of my favorite pages in all of X-Men history. It's what you, so captivating. What do you I, like about it? I love the giant pterodon face and like just how it takes up, but like looks oddly realistic for such a silly, ridiculous thing. It, it um, makes you think it's Sauron um, again. And then, <laughs> and then, and then just the angel of it all. It can't be happening again. It can't like that. I feel like that's so many people's take on angel. <laughs> like poor Warren, <laughs> you are the saddest rich white boy. You are the saddest. <laughs> <laughs> So we learn through exposition that Angel was still kind of struggling with the hypnosis that Sauron had put him under. So Lorna Dane had also been drained by Carl Lycos. Uh, Angel is like wanting to go find Lycos because he feels like he's dangerous. He tells Alex and Lorna to stay behind. He rushes uh, and confronts uh, Air Anderson, the father of Tanya, who is wondering where Tanya has gone. She, of course, has gone to Tierra del Fuego. Uh, Angel then rushes to Sauron's offices or Lycos' uh, psychotherapy offices and reads his journals where he learns the origin story and rushes to Tierra del Fuego where the X-Men are. He sees Tanya there and she basically says, you know, Carl's dead now, but the X-Men are in the Savage Land. Like, look over there. There's this little portal where they all went through <laughs> and, and there's a, like a tunnel that goes down into the Savage Land. <laughs> Angel goes through, he's attacked by the Pteranodons, he collapses on the ground, and we have a little frogman that finds him. This is the uh, Savage Land Mutate Amphibious, who is like a little frog guy. I don't know how to describe him. He has a harness on his back. He uh, He's all green and bouncy. He's like if Toad were an actual Toad. <laughs> but also with like leopard spots. Like those are leopard spots, not Toad spots. That's very fair. He's a he's a big frog. Uh, he's got big old eyes. I love Amphibious. Weirdly, he's just so bizarre. Uh, uh, do you guys have thoughts on Amphibious or his design? I am learning a lot about your taste, Chad. I'm learning a lot. <laughs> I, I love, love it for the better. <laughs> uh, uh, Anya, will you continue the story? Yes. So we get a full splash page of. Angel lying face down on the ground and the master, who we don't know who it is, but he's an older man and he is very interested in the science about this, but oh no, Angel's dead, so obviously Angel's going to be out of the comics forever. Um, we we got to talk about this this old man's look and his costume. Let's... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this I'm gonna give the big spoiler. We learn at the end of this issue. This is Magneto going by the name. The oh King. my god! He's you called the what? Creator oh here. God. And what is he wearing? Oh, I'm sorry. I said, the but he is called Master at certain points. What is he wearing here? I don't He's know. Metal like... harness exoskeleton thing. <laughs> <laughs> but what's interesting is like the weird spaceship suit thing he's wearing is the same amphibious is wearing so like why does he need it what does that like presumably amphibious needs it because don't kink shame on you what i'm not kink shaming i'm not kink shaming <laughs> except for to chad and chad's thing about toads but that's different so step back in continuity a little bit. We last saw Magneto when uh, he had the big plot where he tried to take over the United Nations with Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch and Toad, and Toad turned against Magneto and kicked him out of the ship, and he was lost in the ocean. Then there was the Magneto robot that worked with Mesmero, but it wasn't really Magneto. So this is our first time seeing him in the comics in a couple of years. He's wearing an orange, like, 
tight jumpsuit with a blue belt and a gun and a holster. And then there's like some weird tech on his shoulders. It's like a it's like a tech backpack that like has tubes that extend to like weird metal gloves on his hands. And he's called the creator here. He's got his uh, his guy's white hair, but he does not look anything like the Magneto we know up to this point. I feel like somebody saw that backpack and decided to invent the camel pack. (laughs) (laughs) That's the camel pack origin story. Yeah, it's a truly wild look for him. Uh, (laughs) Anya, keep us going. Okay, so anyway, Amphibious and the creator are concerned about this dead dude that fell out of the sky. Amphibious is like, oh, he's useless. Creator's like, no, something might be useful. And then all of a sudden we swap to a Tyrannosaurus Rex who does seem to have rapidly turned his neck, worth noting. Um, (laughs) And the other four are there, um, you know, Cyclops is trying to lead, doing his Cyclopsy thing. Um, Bobby and and um hank are doing some nice little snark one of my favorite lines um oh i'm getting ahead of myself here um there's some really crappy quips back and forth (laughs) for a little while like scott saying it'll take more than a set of braces to fix that lizard's bridge work while he is zapping tyrannosaurus rex in the face um and then we see an arm come in that says, you've done enough, X-Men, in an exclamation-y little box uh, or bubble. Um, and we don't know what's happening, and somebody attacks Cyclops. Oh, no. It's Kazar! <laughs> um, so we're somehow in his domain. Then here's the line that I love so much. Your thoughts are small, X-Men, like your forearms. <laughs> He saw that his first appearance in X-Men number 10 was very sassy. And he continues that here. He's like body shaming them while he like <laughs> kicks their asses at the same time. Look, He's I'm very do-you-even-lift-bro-coded. Uh, say it again, uh, Anas. He's very do-you-even-lift-bro-coded. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> uh, so he says, my, my jungle kingdom is huge. Far greater than you can imagine. Um... Then he has a run-in with Bobby where Bobby tells him it's rude to point and Bobby freezes his hand and then he smacks Bobby with Bobby's own ice. Like across the face. Whap! It's, it's amazing. <laughs> um, Beast interjects, um, says some kind of offensive stuff and then um, then plays dead because Zabu comes in, which I... Well, and Beast, Beast calls Kesar an arrogant aborigine. Ugh. Yeah. Punch him yeah, in the that's... face, Kesar, please. Wait, I, I, mean... I, I literally read that as Abergene. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be so much better. Um, but yeah, I, I want to like send this panel to a bunch of people who defend Beast and be like, see, Hank was always awful. Um, <laughs> he He's also called Bobby a sidekick. I'm like, come on, give Bobby a space. Also, Beast he's is- so freaking pretentious that he won't even say the camel's back. He has to say camel's spinal column. <laughs> so bad. Beast, Beast is like so horny for Kesar too. Like it's, but it's, it's like under. It's like a little subtle, but you can you can read into it pretty easily. Um, but then then when Zabu shows up, this this might be my favorite Beast line of all time. <laughs> and that is most definitely it, you grapefruit lead Tarzan. For that, I'm going to. 
I'm going to lie very still and play dead because Zabu shows up. That, <laughs> that's Hank actually being witty. Uh, I feel like we're seeing a little bit of the relationship that's going to happen between him and Wonder Man. Now we're about to learn Kesar does, he didn't just come in to like fucking punch the X-Men in the face. He does have uh, some stuff going on here. There are people going missing from various tribes. The tribes may go to war. He's not quite sure what's going on. There's like this mysterious guy kidnapping people. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But he runs in and sees the X-Men here. So there was reason for him to instigate conflict. Although it's the typical, you know, I'm going to punch you in the face rather than ask you questions uh, motive that we so often get in comic books. <laughs> uh, and uh, Kesar jumps in a tree and the Savage Land mutates enter. We'll talk more about them in a second, but uh, Anas, will you continue uh, with the next few pages for us? Absolutely. So, um, Kesar basically jumps head first again and attacks the uh, I think these are the mutates. No, they're not really the mutates. They're one of the tribes. But they're led by one of the mutates who has the power to make people basically get vertigo. Uh, and uh, Kazar begins uh, to feel his head spinning and he can't stand anymore. And so he collapses. And that's when the X-Men jump in. Uh, you know, they fight a bunch of these guys. They attack. And back in the lair, Magneto is reviving uh, Angel in, the, in a cryogenic unit. And he's mentioning how there's like a flicker of spark left in him. And he's trying to like revive it. And what I thought was very interesting is that this is like, I, if I'm not mistaken, this is Angel's new costume debut. So uh, the the mutates are commending Magneto or the master for his, uh, you know, intelligence and his uh, amazing work designing this new costume because they say, you'll replace his life just as you did his tattered clothing, which I thought was a very funny line. So this is Angel's like very classic halo on the chest. White yeah. on the center, blue on the sides, look. So I guess it's designed by Magneto then, that suits. <laughs> I love this costume, it's so good. <laughs> I mean, the halo is a little bit on the nose, but, you know, we'll let that slide. <laughs> now, in his uh, in his flashbacks to his original Avenging Angel, before he joined the X-Men, he did have a halo on his chest then, too. Yes, uh, that's so true. It's technically reincorporation. Well, you know, Magneto has, a, has an eye for fashion, I guess, then. <laughs> Yes, he does. So uh, Angel is resuscitated and he lives again. Uh, reaching out, he uh, talks to the creator and finds out that basically the X-Men are on the attack. This is when um, Equilibrius <laughs> returns to the lair and lets him know that he was attacked by Kazar and others, which are the X-Men. And Angel vo like volunteers to basically defend the creator from the X-Men because he just saved his life. Um, uh, you've got to describe Equilibrius's costume for us. <laughs> uh, it's it's a statement. It's a fashion statement. <laughs> Can we expect some Equilibrius cosplay from you and us? <laughs> maybe maybe Brainchild. Uh, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> has he has like a little pink hat on that almost looks like a wig and like little flippy conical things that come out from his neck that are like pink 
hypnosis eye it's look. color. <laughs> and then it's like the color. tightest little pink tunic and a pink belt and a pink cape and pink boots <laughs> and pink bracelets. And his legs are entirely exposed as is his chest and shoulders. It is the worst costume. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a statement though. I don't know it's the worst. Ooh, it's I don't know what bad. it is, but it's pretty bad. <laughs> this is one of the lesser known Savage Land mutates. He basically uh, is like the early version of Vertigo. If he looks at you, yeah. he can make you dizzy. And Vertigo is a way better version of this power set later. <laughs> I, I, I could see why they were like, yeah, let's just crap this guy and come up with the same character that has the same power set. <laughs> I like that he's like all pink and then the, the weird neck thing looks like a heart so that it seems like he's kind of some whack cupid <laughs> i got like queen of hearts from alice in wonderland kind of vibe oh yeah yeah <laughs> except off with this guy's head please <laughs> my word uh, on, on page 15 where his like hat has fallen off you can see why he wears a hat because he, <laughs> he has the worst hairdo too <laughs> It's just helmet hair. <laughs> uh, uh, Angel is still struggling. He's still kind of trying to get his mind under control. He does not recognize Magneto. And uh, uh, okay, so we're going to pause here. Magneto has landed in the Savage Land. He's been here for a while. And we're not going to learn this till next issue, but he's found some machines that were made by aliens, basically. In this issue, Magneto claims that he's been uh, recruiting mutants from various Savage Land tribes uh, because they were in danger, and he's been putting them on this team that he's calling the Savage Land Mutates. And uh, someone even comments like, oh, you're very much like Professor X. But we're going to learn in the next <laughs> issue, he's actually been kidnapping people from these tribes and using these alien machines to give them superpowers. He, uh, colonial style, he is like creating superhumans with alien technology uh, and making these people beholden to him. This is 60s Magneto. He is not a nice guy. We do not like him for doing this. Uh, but he does give us the Savage Land Mutates, who we love. Uh, thoughts and comments on this plot line for Magneto? He's quote unquote plundering the Savage Land. <laughs> Uh, it's very problematic, the uh, the colonialism of it all, the idea of the white guy interfering with tribal politics or pillaging resources. Now, the Savage Land, we learned years later, uh, was created millions of years ago by an alien race called the Nuwali. It's spelled N-U-W-A-L-I. They leave machines behind that preserve the Savage Land and keep the dinosaurs alive. Uh, these machines are used in some classic X-Men stories. Uh, sometimes we've seen the Savage Land wiped out and the machines will restore them. I'll have more about these machines and the new Wally to say when we do the trial of Kesar. But basically, Magneto's using some ancient technology here. Uh, this technology is also used by Magneto in his appearances in X-Men The Hidden Years, if you're familiar with that uh, series, which is Magneto's next canonical appearance after his appearances in these two issues, X-Men 62 and 63. Uh, so is this before... Chad, is this before we know that Magneto is a Holocaust survivor? Yes, that was okay. not revealed until the late 80s. The eugenics of it all is a little, a little problematic for 
somebody who's yeah we don't stories. we don't learn about that piece of him until the 80s we don't learn about the moira of it all until just a few years ago so there's a, <laughs> there's a lot that stacks together here uh but i attribute when we do the trial of magneto i attribute there's kind of a desperation on his part to create a safe space for mutants uh but he also wants to be served and be called master uh, uh we have some writers posit that his powers make him a little bit crazy so there's a there's a lot going on with this story, but the idea of it is is still very problematic. Uh, uh, any, any thoughts on that section before I cover the last five pages? Um, we need to acknowledge to the purest dodo bird. <laughs> Being ridden by a man, <laughs> just like swatting it with ferocity, like, and the bird is just like having a visceral reaction. Yeah. Neil Adams it's going the wrong way. <laughs> Neil Adams pencils with a few exceptions here seem a little bit more rushed in this issue. They're not as clean or as impressive as they have been in a lot of the 60s books. But uh but it's still good. Um so basically Kazar is trying to avert a civil war because these tribes are all very upset. And Magneto has formed this team of superhumans. He's literally trying to kind of stage a coup. I don't know if coup is the right word. He's trying to take over the Savage Land and all of the resources there. And we meet the Savage Land mutates. I'm going to cover them quickly here. We have Equilibrius, who we covered a minute ago, who's one of the lesser used uh, Savage Land mutates. Another one is Piper, who is a guy that wears a tunic basically with a hood he can play a pipe and summon monsters uh we'll talk about him more in a second then we get uh introduced to five more very quickly one is gaza g-a-z-a who is a blind mutant who kind of has like daredevil powers he has like a radar sense i said mutant these are mutates not mutants uh, another one is amphibious who we call the man frog he can swim underwater he's super bouncy uh, we've got a guy named Barbarus, who's like an early version of Forearm from the Mutant Liberation Front. He has four arms and he is super strong. Uh, then we've got Lupo, L-U-P-O, who is uh, a guy in this issue who has like blue hair and a blue little beard and blue fuzz on his uh, on his shoulders, uh, who can commune with animals. He's, uh, he's kind of like a beast man from the He-Man series. He can control or communicate with animals. This, this character will later be redesigned and have completely blue and black fur. There's also a female version of him in another story called Lupa. Uh, and then lastly, Brainchild, who is the most problematic one. He is described here as uh, having a computer-like mind and the emotions of an infant. And this is a character who is like got a real big head, a terrible hairdo. He wears this giant medallion on his chest. Uh, he's super smart. He is the leader of the Savage Land Mutates and a bunch of future stories. He's obsessed with like dominating and mutating Storm. He's super rapey, super creepy, uh, but an iconic, really problematic villain <laughs> uh, of the of the Savage Land Mutates outside of Vertigo, who doesn't appear till later. He's probably the most remembered. Uh, tell me some of your thoughts on these characters. So Lupo, and I don't like I've never seen Lupo before, but this particular image reminds me so much of those those dudes from um Mario Brothers, the like the I think it was like Super Mario or Super Mario 2, where they they throw the eggs out of their mouth. 
Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, the Birdo? <laughs> yeah, Birdo. Yes. Something about him totally reminds me of Birdo. <laughs> <laughs> I can't stop thinking about it. <laughs> I'm sure you wanted something more profound from me, Chad. You're like, no, no, this is a wonderful. Uh, Dr. Austin from Columbia is like, Birdo. Uh, what about Barbarous? I mean, we prefer forearm, but uh, thoughts on Barbarous, low forearmed Barbarous? I'm fine. I, I, we don't really get to see, like, we don't get to see him properly. Um, but out of the ones that were introduced, I have to say, like, uh, I didn't know uh, Brainchild at all. But he is the most uh, interesting, just because his name is literally, like, literal of what his powers are, which is so stupid. It's like, brain, child, smart, child, like, come on. <laughs> Well, and then the fact that his head is oversized, but his face is still small. So it's like thinking about just his giant brain and receding hairline. <laughs> All of these characters get major visual upgrades in their next appearances. They show up in Aven uh, Avengers number 105. And then that Marvel fanfare series by Chris Claremont in the early 80s. And then they're back in Uncanny X-Men, like 250, 275. They show up in Wolverine and X-Men Unlimited. They get significant visual upgrades over the years. It's almost as if they're kind of drawn weakly and very sickly here, where later, Barbarous, as an example, looks super puny with like thin arms here. But when he shows up later, he looks more like Forearm, where he's like this massively strong guy with like giant arms. Uh, all of these characters, it will surprise no one because I love to write about the characters that I love. All of these characters have profiles written by me on the Marvel Appendix site, so feel free to look those up. I uh, I love these villains. I think they're ridiculous and wonderful. Uh, so, okay, so to continue uh, the review of this story, uh, the X-Men are being attacked. Uh, Kesar runs off uh, because Piper has summoned a giant red sea monster that can seemingly breathe fire. And the X-Men are completely overwhelmed. And there's this hilarious grouping of like five panels with no words on it, where Kesar just like lifts Piper up off the ground, breaks his pipe and like leaves him unconscious on the ground. And it just, the silence of this makes me love Kesar so much. Uh, once it's he's knocked really out- great. Yeah, once he's knocked out, the sea monster just kind of slithers away. And, uh, and- Angel is still with uh, with the creator, uh, who is, again, claiming that he has saved all of these uh, superpowered mutants to serve him. And Angel literally says, uh, so you've been searching out mutants among the tribes here, like a Stone Age Professor X. And Magneto <laughs> is trying to play it cool. He's like, I'm not familiar with the man you mentioned. <laughs> it's just hilarious. I don't, I don't know her. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know her. She doesn't even go here. Like, it's... <laughs> And uh, yeah, he claims that he's rescued these mutants from hostile tribesmen who were like after them. And he's like training them as a new team. But again, we're going to learn in the next issue. That's not the case. Uh, Angel flies off. Uh, creator, the creator has convinced him he's looking for peace in the savage land. And is By destroying X-Men. What's that? By fighting the X-Men. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and as soon as Angel flies away, like Magneto untucks and is like beautiful, beautiful. The angel will delay the others, thus giving me the precious moments I need, the moments that will make me the master of an entire planet. And Amphibious says, 
then he does not suspect creator. And Magneto says, no, Amphibious, but then why should he? The angel has never seen me before, except in my all conquering colors. Perhaps it is true what they say. And he slides open a panel and you see the iconic Magneto helmet there. And he says, perhaps clothes do make the man, which is very like gay fashion Magneto. And I'm kind of <laughs> I have to, I love the reveal, honestly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't see it coming, so. So you were genuinely surprised? Yeah. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I, I kind of was, too, just because I don't know the Savage Land well. And so then I, I when I, when I saw it, I was like, oh, of, co- of course. And like, kind of smacking <laughs> myself in the head over it. Uh, this is classic, like, the X-Men went looking for Sauron and kind of fell in a hole and then end up fighting Magneto in the Savage Land. It's, like, very comic booky. You just wind up somewhere. And, uh, uh, again, both Sauron and Magneto as the creator are picked up in John Byrne's X-Men The Hidden Years series, which we will cover on the podcast later. Next issue in X-Men 63, we get one more of the Mutates, who's one of my favorites, the character Lorelei who I did a whole Patreon episode with Demanda Martini about. So if you have, uh, that's been released on the main page too. So if you haven't heard it, it's a ton of fun. Go give it a listen. Um, I love Demanda and I love Lorelai. Demanda came dressed as Lorelai for our show. It was wonderful. Oh, I, I saw her Instagram about that. Yeah, she's, a, she's become friends with me too. So yeah, I love seeing your dynamic. Demanda <laughs> just messaged me a couple of days ago. We're pretty good friends. In fact, she's coming to Utah soon. We're going to hang out. But she had a uh, a profile of her written in uh, like a national magazine because she's been kind of harassed about drag queen story time, which she's talked about on my show. And they just took a photo of her social, like from social media without asking for a photo. And they used her photo of her dressed as Lorelai in, <laughs> in this magazine. She's like, why did they choose this one? It was kind of amazing. <laughs> <laughs> So oh uh, we get more Savage Land mutates in the next issue. But what were your thoughts as we kind of wrap up our our uh, review of this issue? What did you like? What did you hate? I thought it was a great issue. I I have to say I really enjoyed the coloring in the very in the very beginning of the issue. Um, the first few pages. Let me just scroll back up here. Yeah. Um, this page with Lorna and uh, Angel back in like the beginning. I love the use of color in this, where there was like the shading was either green or blue. I thought that was brilliantly done. Very unique for its era. I loved it so much. And, you know, it's a solid issue for an introduction of like the mutates and, you know, this general part of the lore. I think it's very interesting. They did a good job. Anya, any final thoughts? I, I, I love finding stuff that I don't know much about. So the whole idea, I haven't read very little 60s X-Men. I have read very little Savage Land. Um, so I love exploring this and learning more about it. I, you know, of course, know Sauron's origin story, but actually seeing it on the pages, well, pieces of it on the page is a very different thing. Um, and I, I love Magneto goes and conquers something new, plots. That's that's just fun seeing him in new spaces trying to take over. 60s Magneto has a truly wild journey. We cover 60s Magneto, or at least pre-Claremont Magneto, comprehensively in the two-part trial of Magneto series on this podcast. If you haven't heard it, we have an all-star cast of guests. It's very trauma-dense and then very ridiculous, uh, but it's great. Uh, so this is X-Men 62. 
this is my least favorite, probably Neil Adams' pencil journey. There's some really good stuff here, but out of all of his X-Men issues, uh, I feel like this one he's very rushed on. This is the iconic Angel costume, uh, and Angel has used this costume again and again and again over the years. So that's uh, that's probably more significant than the Savage Land mutates, although I love them very much. Um, <laughs> canon is that like for my head canon right now is that Magneto designed that suit, and that's all that's all I'm gonna talk about. Uh, Magneto later wears that suit. Oh? Uh, we'll get to that story another time. But there's a there's a uh, an adventure in the future where Magneto wears Angel's costume. It's, uh, yeah, he Angel wears it better though. <laughs> okay, there are four comics left in the original X Men Volume One series. Uh, it it ends in 1969, turning into 1970. Number 63 is the continuation of this story with Neil Adams' pencils again. Uh, number 64, uh, Don Heck takes over as penciler, and it's the first appearance of Sunfire. Number Ooh. 65, Neil Adams is back, and it's the big revelation that Professor X is alive, and we get to fight the aliens and ox. And then issue 66, uh, we have Sal, Sal Bishama on pencils. And it's when the X-Men fight the Hulk. And then we're done. Uh, I mean, I have a lot more on the podcast to say after that and a ton of content. But we are nearing the end of what I initially set out to do. And we've taken a lot of side steps along the way. Uh, so I've got crazy cool stuff as we're wrapping up this uh, the initial run. I've got huge guests upcoming uh, and some really, really major announcements uh, coming along the works. Uh, so thank you, everybody, for taking this very long ride with me. I'm having a great time. Uh, as we are wrapping up, uh, Anas and uh, Anya, where can people find you online? And recognizing we're going to drop this around uh, January 16th, is there anything you'd like to plug? Uh, let's have Anya go first and then Anas. Well, um, I've kind of given up on Twitter, which is a whole emotional experience. Um, but I still have my professional account on Instagram, which is at Daughters of Magneto. Um, and uh, I don't have immediate projects that I'm working on. I mean, aside from the whole doctoral thing, which will be forever. Um, but hopefully in the new calendar year, I'll be more active and vocal about all the stuff that I'm working on through the socials, um, especially with this work with the Brink Literacy Project. And if you're unfamiliar with that, please check it out. It is a phenomenal organization. And then uh, Anas. All right. So if this is going to come out in January, then I guess this is going to be one of the first places I ever promote my upcoming book, which is super exciting. You listening in the future, um, big announcement, I guess. <laughs> huge, um, huge announcement. Huge announcement. My very first published comic book is coming out on March 22nd from Sourcepoint Press. It's called Etheris. It is a, a, like a passion project of mine that has been in the works for over a year. It's illustrated by Dennis Menhir, who was a, a, like, he's going to be a breakout artist. He's, he's Dutch and he's just, his work is brilliant. And it's lettered by DC Hopkins and edited by Michelle Abinader. Uh, it's the final order cutoff is February 28th. So please go to Previews World, talk to your local comic book shop, ask them to shelf it, get yourself a copy. Like I need all the support I can get for this book. It's it's like it feels like my whole life has been leading up to this, and I'm just beyond excited, honestly. Um, 
yeah, the announcement should drop basically later down the, the line this month. Uh, so there's no there's no diamond code yet, but once that's available, you'll be able to find it on my socials. I am at ns underscore Abdulhaq on everything. So please come find me. And that's I'm going to spell it for people. It's A N A S, and then Abdulhaq is A B D U L H A K. So give this guy a follow because. You get to say, I knew him when. I feel like you are going places, my friend. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Anya, I'm so excited to hear how your research is going and how it turns out. I will keep following up with uh, both of you because you're lovely and I like you. Uh, <laughs> on Grimalkin Lane, the next episode is going to continue into the uh, Savage Land Butate story, X-Men number 63. Uh, and we get to have the uh, writer of the Silver Sable series from the 90s joining us, uh, Mr. Gregory Wright. Uh, we have a ton of queer content to cover with Gregory. I'm really excited. Right after that, we will be releasing the trial of Sean Cassidy, uh, the Banshee, who I have so much to say about. Uh, we get to cover the original 60s nonsense version and then the real sexy Gen X, like, teacher dad version. So it'll be <laughs> it'll be everything and in between, ending in uh, Vox Ignis, uh, who uh, is appearing in the Legion of X series currently. Uh, I, uh, I also am putting out weekly episodes on the Patreon. If you have not followed, it's only $3 a month. I'm doing four episodes a month on obscure characters or supporting characters. And I'm having so much fun on this show, I'm having even more fun on the Patreon. Right around the time this comes out, the next couple Patreon episodes, if the schedule is working, will feature Birdie, uh, the Sabretooth character uh, with my guest, Terry Blass. And uh, I'm also really excited about uh, covering the character Sapphire Sticks with the incredible writer, Jim Zub. So uh, watch out for those. Uh, with some major announcements uh, soon to follow. You can find Gray Malkin Lane, Gray Malkin PP Like Podcast on Twitter, Gray Malkin underscore Lane on Instagram. Say hi anytime. And uh, we have huge announcements uh, now that it is the new year. So watch out for everything that is coming on the show. Uh, Anya, Anas, and uh, although he already disconnected, Val, thank you all so much for being here with me today. Uh, I had so much fun. We will see you all back here next time on Gray Malkin Lane. Thank you, Chad. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Gray Malk and Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Gray Malk and Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Grand Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Grand Malkin Lane.